My name is Tony. I'm one of the pastors of Mountain View at Main Campus, and we're so, so happy that you are here at Mountain View Sunnyside this morning. There is a long tradition within the church of Christians venerating ascetic monks, these guys who separate themselves from society to try to unlock some kind of intense kind of devotion to God. Uh, We like to venerate these people and and honor these people, and they did a lot of good stuff. I mean, in, in an age before laptops and printers, these guys copied down and preserved the Bible so that people could study it and read it and learn about God and, and learn to grow to love Him. And they, they showed incredible devotion to prayer and to charity for people who are in need. There's a lot to admire about these monks. Some of them did take it too far. There's one guy named Simeon Stylites, and he was so kind of uh, upset with the way people were living and, and the sin that, that was around him and the, the horrible behaviors from people around him that he just wanted to get away from it all. So he spent the bulk of his life living on top of a pillar, which he would, over time, build and continue to build, and it would grow higher and higher and higher until he spent almost all of his days on top of this pillar, high up as far away as he could get from sinful other people. Now, any, I think any husband who's followed his wife around Hobby Lobby can understand the sentiment of wanting to just get away from every other person. That was me a couple weeks ago. I get what Simeon was doing. But I don't think many of us would specifically choose, I'm going to go spend my days by myself on top of this pillar. Not many of us would choose this, but I think in our smartphone age, a lot of us, the, the temptation is to accidentally live like Simeon stylites. I mean, how easy is it today to, to go an entire day without having any meaningful human interaction with anyone? Our digital enhancements and virtual communities have lots of studies show, and I think our own experience shows, have made us lonelier than ever. We've accidentally become like Simeon stylites. This gives us, the church, an incredible opportunity. We get to show the world a better way of how to love people and how to care for them and how to be with people. We can also point people to Jesus Christ, who though he was God and though he is holy and we are sinful people, he didn't just stay above, far away from us to stay holy. He came down to us. He came near. He became flesh and dwelt among us. He was human for us. So we're going to read in 1 Timothy 5 where we see a life informed by this grace of God in action. What that looks like. What does it look like not to separate ourselves from society to try to be holy, but what does it look like to bring the grace of God to other people? So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to 1 Timothy 5. We're going to read a huge chunk, um, all of chapter 5 and the first two verses of chapter 6. So here we go. Never speak harshly to an older man, but appeal to him respectfully, as you would to your own father. Talk to, talk to younger men as you would to your own brothers. Treat older women as you would your mother, and treat younger women with all purity as you would your own sisters. Take care of any widow who has no one else to care for her. 
But if she has children or grandchildren, their first responsibility is to show godliness at home and repay their parents by taking care of them. This is something that pleases God. Now, a true widow, a woman who is truly alone in this world, has placed her hope in God. She prays night and day, asking God for his help. But the widow who lives only for pleasure is spiritually dead, even while she lives. Give these instructions to the church so that no one will be open to criticism. But those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. A widow who is put on the list for support must be a woman who is at least 60 years old and was faithful to her husband. She must be well-respected by everyone because of the good she has done. Has she brought up her children well? Has she been kind to strangers and served other believers humbly? Has she helped those who are in trouble? Has she always been ready to do good? The younger widows should not be on the list because their physical desires will overpower their devotion to Christ and they will want to remarry. Then they would be guilty of breaking their previous pledge. And if they are on the list, they will learn to be lazy and will spend their time gossiping from house to house, meddling in other people's business and talking about things they shouldn't. So I advise these younger widows to marry again have children, and take care of their own homes. Then the enemy will not be able to say anything against them, for I am afraid that some of them have already gone astray and now follow Satan. If a woman who is a believer has relatives who are widows, she must take care of them and not put the responsibility on the church. Then the church can care for the widows who are truly alone. Elders who do their work well should be respected and paid well, especially those who work hard at both preaching and teaching. I wonder why that's many pastors' favorite verse. It's interesting. Uh, For the scripture says, you must not muzzle an ox to keep it from eating as it treads out the grain. And in another place, those who work deserve their pay. Do not listen to an accusation against an elder unless it is confirmed by two or three witnesses. Those who sin should be reprimanded in front of the whole church. This will serve as a strong warning to others. I solemnly command you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus and the highest angels to obey these instructions without taking sides or showing favoritism to anyone. Never be in a hurry about appointing a church leader. Do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Don't, only, don't drink only water. You ought to drink a little wine for the sake of your stomach because you are sick so often. Remember, The sins of some people are obvious, leading them to certain judgment. But there are others whose sins will not be revealed until later. In the same way, the good deeds of some people are obvious, and the good deeds done in secret will someday come to light. All slaves should show full respect for their masters, so they will not bring shame on the name of God and his teaching. If the masters are believers, that is no excuse for being disrespectful. Those slaves should work all the harder because their efforts are helping other believers who are well loved. Now, before we get into the meat of this passage, I did want to spend a minute or two on this slavery bit. What on earth is that saying? Isn't slavery wrong? Isn't it a sin? Yes. There's a few things I want to say about this passage, this brief bit. First is that there is a difference in kind between the slavery that happens in biblical times and American chattel slavery in the United States before the Civil War. It is different. In this time, in in the biblical era, uh, people became slaves because their community was overrun by an invading army. So they were 
would become, would become slaves or because they uh, had a large debt that they could not pay back, so they had to become a slave to pay back the debt. This is why people became slaves. It wasn't based on race. Uh, it was based on other things. And it wasn't a permanent thing. You could become free, and the sla- your status as a slavery was not passed on to your children and your children's children, whereas in America, the enslavement of Af- African Americans was purely based on race and purely based on white supremacy. And it was not something you could just get out of. It's something that's passed on to your children and children's children. There's a difference in kind. It's not the same kind of slavery. It's not a one-to-one thing. Just to, so we have some background. A second thing is, it is true, American Christians before the Civil War, some of them, used verses like this in the Bible to defend slavery. Now, to be sure, there are many Christians of the time who used the Bible to promote an anti-slavery position, but it does us no good to try to sweep under the rug the fact that lots of American Christians before the Civil War used the Bible to defend the enslavement of African people. That happened. But a third point is that those American Christians were wrong. They were wrong. The Bible promotes an anti-slavery ethic. Uh, And we see this all over the Bible, but I want to look particularly for a minute at the book of Philemon. This is a book that a letter Paul writes to a guy named Philemon, who is a slave owner, and he writes to, it, to him about his slave named Onesimus. Philemon's a believer, and Onesimus has become a believer. You can read this book for yourself. It's one chapter long at the end of the New Testament. You can read it this afternoon. But I want to look at verse 16. Paul writes to Philemon about Onesimus. He is no longer like a slave to you. He is more than a slave, for he is a beloved brother, especially to me. Now he will mean much more to you, both as a man and as a brother in the Lord. Now, we shouldn't make Paul say, Philemon, slavery is always wrong. You should free your slaves immediately, and we should work to free all the slaves in the Roman Empire. He doesn't say that, so we shouldn't make him say that. But notice what he does say. What he says is the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it destroys any foundation that could exist that could support slavery, that could withstand slavery in society. He says he's no longer like a slave to you. He is a brother. In the gospel, in Jesus Christ, the ground is level before the foot of the cross. There's no longer slave master and slave. We are, the ground is level. We are equal before God. So the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Bible destroys any foundation that could exist for slavery. And indeed, in the Roman Empire, the first people to come up and agitate for and fight against slavery were the early Christians. So that's a little brief bit. If you have any more things you would like to talk about, any questions, I'd love to talk to you after the service about that. But the vast majority of this passage is about the way the church should care for its people. And it's very practical, and it's got a lot of things in there, right? But I think you could boil it down to three main themes. In order to love people as we ought, the Lord calls us to remember, to empower, to hold to account. Remember, empower, and hold to account. And though this is really practical stuff, I hope that we remember, too, that these aren't just things that we're called to do, but these are actually things that Jesus Christ does for us. And they enable us to do those things that we're called to do. We're going to talk about all this stuff today. So the first thing, we remember As the church, we remember other people. We see that all throughout the first bit of this chapter. Uh, Treat your your 
older men well, treat younger men well, treat older women well, treat younger women well. Remember widows to take care of them. And all kind of culminates this section in verse 8, where Paul writes, but those who won't care for their relatives, especially those in their own household, have denied the true faith. Such people are worse than unbelievers. One thing this passage makes very clear is that we cannot simply forget the people around us in order to focus on ourselves, to try to make ourselves as holy as we possibly can be by steering clear of of sinful other people. Uh, As Christians, we are called to remember other people and to serve those who are around us who are in need. And in Fresno, as the church, we have an incredible opportunity. In Fresno, uh, according to some studies, the city of Fresno ranks second among major U.S. cities with regard to extreme poverty. And indeed, the Atlantic Magazine calls Fresno California's poorest major city. California has 1,500 homeless people. Uh, More than one out of five of our households qualify for and receive food stamps. Perhaps that's you, and we are thrilled that you're here. Welcome. Uh, But again, this passage talks about widows, presumably, you talk about younger widows, presumably some of them with young children. And in Fresno, in our city, more than half of single mother families with children under five live in poverty. This passage talks about our elders. In Fresno, California, more than half of our senior citizens live with a disability, which generally results in poverty. There's a lot to be done in our city, but we have an incredible opportunity, and we're called as the church to do something about it. So as the church, as Mountain View, as Mountain View Sunnyside, one of the things that we do is we do a food and clothing distribution. Every second Saturday of every month, uh, a group of people goes to it's at main campus, goes there at 9 a.m. to pack uh, food and get stuff ready, and at 10 a.m., doors open, and tons of people come through to receive food food, to receive clothes, and prayer, and encouragement. It's a wonderful, tangible thing that we as the church can do to bless people who are in need, to bless those people around us, to remember those people around us. So if you would like to participate in that, talk to Pastor Greg after the service. He would love to bless you, get you into that, and to help serve in that way. We're called as the church to remember people. We're also called as individuals Right, Christmas time is coming up, and with that comes decorating, which I don't think is anybody's favorite thing about Christmas, even people who love Christmas. It's kind of annoying, right? A way we can remember and bless and care for our parents and grandparents is we can help them put up decorations. We can go to their homes and be with them and help them put up all the annoying outside decorations that we have to. That's a tangible way that we, as individuals, can care for our parents and grandparents who have loved us all of our lives. We are called to remember. Why is this so important? Why have we, according to verse 8, denied the true faith if we don't do these kinds of things, if we don't care for people around us? And I think it's because if we don't, we show that we have failed to fully grasp the truth of the gospel. So now that we're safely past Thanksgiving, it's culturally acceptable for us to start celebrating Christmas. Although I may or may not have, my family may or may not have decorated our house two weeks ago. We may or may not have began listening to Christmas music two weeks ago. We may or may not, I can neither confirm nor deny, that we've seen Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer three times in the last two weeks. That may or may not have happened. 
It did. Uh, no, we love Christmas. But at Christmas, we get to celebrate the coming of Jesus Christ. I think we know this. But something we can forget is that Christ's coming was a promise. God remembered us. If you recall in Luke 1, after Mary is told that she's going to bear the Savior of the world, she says this. She says, God has remembered to be merciful, for he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. And this promise was a long time coming. Uh, All the way back in Genesis 12, God tells Abraham that the whole world will be blessed through him and his children. It comes even further, even uh, earlier than that. In Genesis 3, after the fall of Adam and Eve, as God has judged them by casting them out of paradise, he still leaves them with this promise that one of Adam and Eve's offspring would crush the head of Satan. It's a promise. And for years, it looked like God had forgotten this promise. But then Jesus came. Then Jesus came. See, God has not forgotten you. Even though if you look at your life and you look at your circumstances, it may seem like he has, like, like you are forgotten. What you may think, where is God? I would encourage you to remember the promise of Christmas. That the virgin will conceive a child, she will give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God is with us. See, God has not forgotten about you or me. Indeed, God gave up his divine privileges. He gave up his spot in heaven to come down and become a human being, to be with us. So he's experienced all the same pains and hurts that you've experienced. He's cried tears just like we have. He's felt abandoned by his closest friends just like we have. He was lonely just like we can be lonely. And he was ultimately tortured and crucified, died, and was buried for us. See, we, we're called to remember, and we can remember and care for other people because Jesus Christ remembered us. We remember. Second thing we can do is we're empowered. In this next section of 1 Timothy 5, Paul outlines some rules with regard to which widows in the, uh, the church is responsible for caring for and which widows their own families are responsible for caring for. And notice what Paul does in this way. He doesn't uh, say, uh, okay, now the church cares for everyone. He empowers people to care for other people. He doesn't just let them depend on the institutional church. He empowers people to go and, and to do it themselves. We are empowered to go. The church, and we are the church. You and me are the church. We're called and empowered to serve the least of these. We serve those in need. We're empowered to do so. Uh, I, in, back in 2012, I was part of the team that came here to Mountain View Sunnyside to help replant this church as a campus. And uh, I got to tell you, it was very hard at first. Um, there were so many times I felt uh, outmanned, outgunned, like I just wasn't good enough, like I didn't really know what I was getting myself into. I wasn't prepared. I, I felt in many ways like the USC Trojans football team. Um, despite their narrow loss to the Notre Dame Fighting Irish. Sorry, Pastor Ken, but it had to be done. Um, But even though I felt this way, 
God still used us because he empowered us to serve. And now look six, seven years later. Look at what Mountain View Sunnyside is and what it has done and how it has grown. We couldn't have imagined it would look like this back when we felt like we were struggling. God has blessed you as you have been empowered to serve, as you you have loved the people within your community. God has blessed you for it. He's empowered you to do so. And just as I was empowered and my team, and just as you are empowered, we are all empowered to serve other people in this way. Don't, so because we're empowered, we don't have to wait to be asked. So you don't need to feel like, for example, if you see a need in the church, like in kids' ministry or something, you don't need to wait to have somebody to ask you, hey, can you help? We are empowered to go. We're empowered to, to do it. If that's you, go to talk to Pastor Ken after the service. He would love to get you plugged in. Say, hey, I would love to serve the children in our community in this way. I would love to teach them the Bible, to teach them the gospel, to teach them to love and and adore our Lord and Savior and to become men and women of God. You're empowered to do so. We don't have to wait to hear a, a dynamite sermon on generosity before we feel like we can be generous. We are empowered now to give of our time, our talents, and our money, because Jesus Christ gave everything for us. We don't have to wait for our parents and grandparents to nag us about coming over to help them with whatever it may be. We are empowered today to love them and to serve them and to be with them. We are empowered to go because we are sent. See, we're sent by Paul in this passage, but we're also sent by Jesus Christ, who commands us to go and make disciples of all nations. Jesus empowers us to go. He sends us. And this empowerment also points us back to Jesus Christ, who he himself was sent for us. He was sent for us, just as he sends us for other people. Because as John three sixteen and 17 says, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. And God sent his son into the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. God sent the Son, Jesus Christ, for us. So thus, when we are sent, our sending has power, because it has the power of the sending of Jesus Christ behind it. We are empowered to go and to serve, not only by a stirring call to serve, but by the perfect love and righteousness of God, who was sent to save us. We remember, we're empowered, and we hold to account. In this last section, Paul gives practical wisdom on how to deal with accusations within the church. And while he prefaces it with a high respect for pastors and elders and the need for multiple witnesses in order to take an accusation seriously, he does make very clear that we are supposed to hold Christians accountable when they sin, especially elders and pastors. Now, he's not saying, you tell a little white lie, we're going to bring you up on the stage and reprimand you in front of everyone. That's not what he's saying. He's talking about repeated uh, sin that is a rejection of Jesus Christ and his gospel, or a major sin that's a rejection of Jesus Christ and his gospel. We're called to hold other believers in account when we fall short in this way. Now, this may seem a little harsh at first reading, at first glance, but it also reflects, I think, our own deep longing for justice. I think we all long to see justice. How many of us have seen People get away with all manner of evil and even succeed and thrive in their lives and in their jobs 
because of their sinful behavior. Just as how many times have we seen or perhaps experienced ourselves nice guys finishing last. We long for justice. We long for God to come and make everything right again. And part of the gospel is that God promises he will, that he will judge and he will make everything right again. And all those people who got away with it will receive justice in the end. But what about us? I think that the temptation for everyone is to see the speck in someone else's eye while missing the log in our own eye. For we all sin. We've all sinned a lot. And even the good things that we do are soaked in sin. One of the best, probably nicest things that I ever did have done in life came when I was 13 years old, which I don't know what it says about my life when the pinnacle of my holiness was when I was 13 years old, but I guess that's something I need to work out on my own. But uh, when I was 13, I'm in school, and a, a, a friend of mine in the class, he was physically handicapped and he couldn't write, so I volunteered to write all of his stuff for him. Bless you, his papers, his homework, tests, notes, write everything. And it was a lot of work. Obviously, uh, doubled my time doing work for this class because I had to write my stuff and then his stuff. But it was a nice thing to do, and I did it. Now, why did I do it? Part of me was motivated, just as all of you are motivated uh, to do good things, just because it's the right thing to do. I, I, wanted, I saw a need, and I was like, hey, this is something I can do to be a blessing. That part of me was definitely motivated by that. But I would be lying if I said that was my only or even main motivation. If I were to honestly search myself, I would see that I have an enormous desire to be liked, to have people think well of me. And I knew if I did something like this, people would probably like me. And lo and behold, that's what happened. Uh, adults would like brag about what I was doing. Classmates honored me for it. My friend really appreciated it. So you see, even this legitimately good thing that I did was soaked with my own pride and vanity and self-righteousness. It was soaked with my own sin, my own sinfulness. I think if we all examined ourselves, if, when I examine myself, I see the truth of the Bible, that no one is righteous, that all have fallen short of the glory of God and sinned, and that the wages of that sin is death. We would see that we are deserving of judgment. I am deserving of judgment. Our Sins will ultimately be revealed and be judged. What then is our hope? It is this. Not only is Jesus the all-wise judge who will hold everyone to account, but Jesus Christ is also the substitute who will be held, who is held to account for us instead of us. Not only does Jesus judge us and hold everyone to account, he is held to account for us so that when we come before God on Judgment Day, He won't judge us according to our own sins, to the, own, to the things that we did. He's going to judge us according to the righteousness of Jesus Christ. This glorious exchange where we're judged not by our own sin, but by the righteousness of God. Galatians 3 puts it this way, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And 2 Corinthians 5 says, God made He who knew no sin, Jesus Christ, to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. This is something which is offered to everyone. Everyone who accepts and believes in Jesus Christ can be saved and be called righteous by the God of the universe. 
See, this is why we do these things. It's the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is why we remember the people around us. This is why we are empowered to care for the people around us. This is why we can hold people to account both with justice and with incredible grace because look at all that God has done for us. God died so that we could be saved so that when he comes to make everything right, he will look at us and not see sinful people who ran far away from him, who could never hold up to his standard, but he will see righteous and holy sons and daughters of God. He would see his friends, and he will welcome them.